0: Be afraid be very afraid this is a special halloween edition of the show good ghost voice helen assuming you are doing a ghost voice and you haven't been possessed already
1: what i didn't make a sound
0: (laughs) (laughs) here's a question from megan in seattle who says it is common at state fairs in the u.s states at northern latitudes where summer days are long to have giant vegetables on display fun the winning pumpkins often weigh between £1,100 and £1,300. Yeah. So Helen, asks me this. What becomes of those giant pumpkins after the fair?
2: What becomes of the giant pumpkins?
0: <laughs> it seems like it would be fun to carve them into giant jack-o'-lanterns.
1: I was reading up on giant pumpkin growing. It's a whole thing online and I enjoyed spending a few hours observing the community of giant pumpkin growers around the world. It seems to be big in New Zealand as well. Yeah. But I think the current record holder is in Belgium or Germany.
0: Uh, he is, uh, yeah, Matthias Welgemans of Belgium.
1: Yeah, he's had an over 2,000 pound pumpkin. They just keep on getting bigger. But I haven't seen that many giant jack-o'-lanterns. And they say, like, it's very easy for the giant pumpkins to split, and that means they're invalid for competition. Right. They're quite fragile. Or maybe it's just people are so wowed by the giantness that they just want to keep them whole because they'll last longer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen giant pumpkins doing a lap of honour. Oh, like, yeah. I've, for example, there's a garden centre near us that always has a giant pumpkin outside at this time of year. And I presume it's been to the the Women's Institute fate or whatever and won a prize, but then it sits outside the garden centre as a sort of photo opportunity prop. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't eat it because it's it's you know it's there for children to sit on and and have a picture taken at.
1: What they often do is they retrieve the seeds to grow next year's giant pumpkins, and then they compost the rest, or they mm-hmm. feed it to wildlife like um, moose and bears and bison yeah because
0: apparently they're quite watery and don't taste it very much
1: well right because they've been grown for spectacle not for flavor so yeah they're not particularly good to eat and also they might have just powerful amounts of fertilizer in
0: (laughs) not something you want in your spiced pumpkin latte
1: it does feel a bit wasteful doesn't it where it's like people have spent a long time growing food that is not fit to eat so a lot of the giant pumpkins will go on display carved or uncarved at say malls or hospitals or restaurants they'll have their victory lap in 2005 an 1100 pound pumpkin was displayed in the lobby of a theater during a boston ballet staging of cinderella Mm -hmm. which i guess makes sense uh you can hire or buy giant vegetables for like photo shoots pr events (laughs) pubs displays, props.
0: It's someone's job to be a giant vegetable rental liaison?
1: Yep, giantveg.co.uk. But then you also get stunts for the giant pumpkins, like people hollow them out and row them down rivers like a boat. I believe the world record so far is 25 and a half miles. And then another thing is uh, pumpkin dropping competitions or pumpkin chucking competitions. Yeah. The world record for pumpkin chucking is... 5,545.43 5,545.43 feet.
0: No, respectable.
1: If you were doing it with a giant pumpkin, that could really, really mess people up, depending on where <laughs> it landed. Although the same with a normal pumpkin, even a tiny pumpkin chucked could take someone out. I assume they've thought about it all.
0: So there is money in them there, pumpkins, because I, I noticed that in, in these big sort of American state fairs that Megan's referring to, um, there's usually a cash prize. And one of them I saw in New Hampshire, which is the as it turns out, largest pumpkin ever grown in the USA, but it's smaller than the one from Belgium. Uh, The bloke won $6,000.
1: Yeah, but it costs like $1,000 to raise a giant pumpkin and then I don't know how much to transport one.
0: Yeah, but here in Britain, Helen, people do it for the love.
1: You don't know. Some of them could be hiring out their giant onions, Ollie, for hundreds.
0: Village Fate, I think if you're lucky, you're getting 50 quid top prize, if there's a prize. $6,000, that's... It's worth putting some effort in, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but it's months of your life and it can go wrong at just any moment so I, I feel like the patient should be rewarded I wonder who's supplying the prize though like
3: what entity is paying
0: mm, what's the agenda
3: big pumpkin
0: <laughs> they're the fertilizer guys
3: hi Helen Ollie and Martin the soundman. my name is Sarah I live on a magical street with magical neighbors and we've all been potting together throughout the pandemic Because Halloween is obviously not going to allow for trick-or-treating this year, we have decided that we're going to create a little street festival for the kids and also for us. I have decided that I'm going to set up a little tent and dress as a witch and offer potions and spells for the kids. The idea being that the kids would come into the tent, tell me what potion or spell they want, and then I would make the potion and spell for them by adding different candies into a bag and then sending them on their way. But I can't really think of any good potions or spells. What would kids get really excited about and sort of believe is true also? Thanks, guys. Happy Halloween.
0: We should say that in her email in which she attached this question, uh, Sarah did say that the kids concerned are between four and seven years old. So we're talking young children here.
1: You've got one child between four and seven. What would uh, mm. make him excited?
0: Ah, the important thing to bear in mind is a bit like meeting Santa Claus. He would be very likely to clam up upon meeting a witch. Yes, and not really say anything at all and be really shy.
2: That's sensible. Witches are quite dangerous.
0: I mean, I know American children might be a little bit more outgoing than British children, um, but nonetheless, you know, they might be intimidated by by a witch. So, um, I, I think keep the interactivity simple. I mean, he'd be excited to joining for example stirring the pot of a cauldron oh yeah but i guess you know now you need to hand sanitize after each application but nonetheless i suppose that applies to witches just as it does to everybody else but so that and I, i'd also say one thing you would be able to get out of him for example is his name so maybe what you could do is do a spell that produces his halloween name for the night i've been looking at this online there's a halloween name generator which works on initials right for instance helen you would be headstone zombie yes for helen's <laughs> uh Martin, you would be Monster Zombie Apocalypse for Martin's Altsorswick. <laughs> oh, nice. Fells <laughs> on brand. I would be Owl Midnight for Ollie Man. Oh, that's, that's cool. That's very emo. They're okay. But I mean, I can imagine a young child being quite excited by a witch telling him, as the result of a spell, what his Halloween name is for the night. So that that's an option.
1: So what would you do? Have the alphabet up on the wall with the names so they can pick out their own name?
0: No, I think it should come as a result of the spell. Otherwise, nothing magic has happened, has Mm. it? But I think you you could learn what each initial means and then consult the cauldron.
1: So Sarah just needs a list that they can't see... So it seems spontaneous, but actually having to make up spontaneous names would be a bit of a pain.
2: You get one of those things that's like an LED light that just magically comes up with a name. You could just, like, surreptitiously program it with your phone underneath the table or something, and it says Headstone Midnight
0: (laughs) Through the Fog. With some assistance, yeah. And when you say Through the Fog, yeah, I think that's important as well. It's interesting, isn't it, that although, you know, it's done internationally and it's particularly American... Uh, Nonetheless, Halloween festivities still, in the same way that Christmas is basically Dickensian, London, all around the world. I feel like Halloween isn't Halloween unless it's a bit foggy and smoky and cold, which it might not be. So I think you need to generate some fog and smoke and stuff somehow.
1: But what you're suggesting is not answering Sarah's question. It's like, what other props could you get? Whereas she wants to know what she can do with candy and words. And what I thought was you could ask the kids what their favourite animal is. Mm-hmm. And then you say, okay, well, then you start putting sweets in saying, okay, eat these and you'll become a lion. But if you eat them in the wrong order, then you might become a mouse or something like that so that like, they can play,
4: basically. Yes.
1: They can imagine themselves animals when they're eating this stuff. Uh, I wonder whether there are other things which are like, this will make you confident. You know, placebo for positive emotions.
0: I, I think that's right. And I think actually... It doesn't really matter what the spell is or what it's for, so long as they can join in. And if they feel they've met a real witch, that will be exciting enough.
1: Brace yourself now for a harrowing question from Isabel. She says, Ollie, answer me this. If I'm going to dress as sexy Martin the Soundman for Halloween, what? What should I wear?
2: <laughs> oh my God.
1: Well, if you're specifying sexy, then it probably has to be PVC or yeah. rubber. So, like a, a PVC beard? PVC t-shirts. Yeah,
0: fishnet corduroys.
1: What? Uh, PVC headphones. Skimpy PVC headphones.
2: Doesn't have to be PVC.
1: It does. That's the Halloween rules, Martin. I still have
2: a lot of hair, though. Just dress like me. Just find a photo of me on the internet. Just try and look like that. That's automatically sexy, Martin, the same
1: man.
0: Okay. With respect uh, to Martin's role as, you know, an independent podcaster in his own right and a, a fine sidekick on this show, I'm not sure that going as anyone where you have to explain the costume is Ever a good Halloween costume,
2: but that's isn't it a good way to start conversations
0: with right.
1: people? And if anyone got it, they would be like your soulmate.
0: That would be <laughs> oh, that would God. be impressive. I mean, I don't think if Martin came as sexy Martin, I'd immediately guess that's who he is. Well,
2: they'd just be like, Well, he's not wearing a costume. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, like if you can get like a Chewbacca outfit and then a pair of headphones, that would probably cover a lot Aww. of ground, wouldn't it? And,
1: and carry a Tom Waits LP oh, around. Oh, yeah,
2: Tom Waits t shirt.
1: What are other trademark Martin things? Egg, an
2: egg
4: eggs
2: i mean i've got a haircut that makes me look a little bit like jason newstead for metallica at the moment circa so, uh, 1993 so if that's a useful reference point
0: go with it where do you stand helen on people doing halloween costumes that actually aren't horror though uh because i know that's a huge thing in the states but here like even if you took a really well-known personality like you know if someone turned up as jonathan ross <laughs> it'd just be weird
1: <laughs> i don't know i think it's actually quite fun and when i went to the spam museum In Austin, Minnesota, last year, they had a Spam costume.
0: I mean, that's glorious, obviously. Wear that every day.
1: I was so sorely tempted to buy it. I mean, I don't go to costume parties anyway, even when they're happening in non-Covid times. But I was like, come on. How often do you get the chance to dress as a can of Spam?
0: But was it a sexy can of Spam?
1: I mean, what isn't, Ollie? (laughs) (laughs) But the costume but sexy thing, that's such a Halloween thing, isn't it? Like, you probably wouldn't wear just normal nurse clothes you have to wear, like, a PVC naughty nurse outfit.
0: Well, apparently the whole sexy Halloween costume fad actually goes back to 1940s Hollywood. Ooh. And it, it, it's from the days when studios had exclusive rights to their stars. Well, starlets, really, is what we're talking about here because it was never really men photographed in this way. And what they do is get them to dress up for the Hollywood magazines as witches and stuff, uh-huh. and or pixies or whatever. And, of course, like the default way to sell magazines with Hollywood starlets then as now... Uh, was, you know, to to produce a slightly sexualized image rather than just a classic witch. And then, inevitably, it became suddenly in the public consciousness, like, you know, you're not just a witch, you're a sexy witch. And then drag queens at gay Halloween parades in the gay villages of various US cities in the 70s Amplified that and sort oh. of like drag queens do, made it more lurid and bold and slightly silly. And then what apparently sort of capped it all off, which makes sense when you think about it, was Elvira coming along in the eighties. Ohvira. And ever since then, like the sexy Halloween thing has become the default adult costume in the United States when you're looking to go as as you say, as a nurse or a or as a witch. It's it's sexy witch.
1: So drag queens plus Elvira, it's it's just exaggerating. These familiar things.
0: Well, I saw it written about in one place on the web as kind of like it's the one night of the year that if you go out dressed as a slut, no one's going to shame you, was the way they'd written it. So it's kind of like, it's a night where you don't have to feel like, you know, modesty is important. If you want to dress like that, then no one says anything, even in the most conservative circles.
2: Isn't that a, like a plot point in Mean Girls? That's right. And it's like, she goes dressed as something scary, and everyone else is just looking hot. She's like a kind of bride of Frankenstein, but just looks generally gross and scary, rather than like hot bride of Frankenstein.
1: Maybe just because people need cheering up, there will be more of a trend for like, the ludicrous rather than the scary or the bloody
0: well I think this year it's all going to be about social media isn't it because obviously people aren't really going out so actually it'll be clothes that you don't have to worry about whether you'd be embarrassed walking down the street because you won't be you'll be doing Halloween from home so I think they'll get ever more outlandish and impractical and it's a chance to just do something stupid
1: and also it's a chance to reinvent yourself as a can of spam if you've got a question email
2: your question
4: to answer me at this podcast to give a
0: A question of films from Amy in Leeds, who says, if a horror movie is rated 18 but features a child actor, quite a lot of those, aren't there, when you think about horror movies, Mm. how is that actor looked after on set so they don't see anything that might potentially traumatise them? Helen, answer me this. Do they get given a censored version of the script? Are they given scenes without any context? Or... Are film sets just not as frightening as they seem on the screen?
1: I mean, probably not, because the actors will be strolling around between takes in all the gore makeup, eating sandwiches. It's very demystifying. (laughs) You don't have the sound design. You wouldn't have the digital effects. It's short takes as well, again and again.
0: The canonical story of Janet Leigh in the shower actually really underlines that, when Hitchcock made the water freezing cold. People often tell that story to underpin his unhealthy obsession with dominating blondes, basically. But actually, what what it really underlines is even one of the greatest film directors of all time found it challenging to get even an adult actor to portray true horror on a film set because of all those things you just said. Like, on a film set, there are loads of people there. You've been there all day. It's a bit of a laugh. You've just had lunch. You know, it, it's difficult to get in that frame of mind.
1: Well, I don't know. I think it's just specific to him because he also kind of tormented Tippy Hedrin on the set of The Birds. She had a horrible time. And uh, Kubrick as well, like the way he treated actors, particularly Shelley Duvall on The Shining, it's like, well, there are people who pretend for a living. You don't actually have to psychologically torment them in the ways that you are doing to get the performance out of them. So I would hope that directors wouldn't do that to children the way that they did to adults in those films.
0: Oh, <laughs> me too.
1: Kubrick was really protective of Danny Lloyd, who plays the boy, and apparently... During filming, he thought he was making a drama, not a horror film.
0: What, like one of those uh, comedy trailers on YouTube.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he only realised the truth many years later when he was shown heavily edited version. He didn't actually watch the film uncut until he was 17, which was 11 years later. And some of the scenes, uh, like when he's being carried away by his mother, he's, he's actually a dummy. Mm. So mm. he's not experiencing that. And then I read an interview with the people who played the, the scary twins. yeah and um when they were doing the scene where it was like their murder scene and the makeup artist was like here's how i make fake blood and so they would just put at ease so i think that's a technique they use a mm. lot as well they they just show them lots of details in the set and they're like this is the thing that looks like this this is the thing that we're going to be doing with this so it's all very technical rather than atmospheric from what i gather There are a lot of rules governing uh, minors on film sets anyway. So a parent or guardian has to be within sight and sound at all times. Yeah. And they will be going through an agent and then the child's legal guardian. So adults know about everything that the child is going to have to do. And the child won't be given the whole script and they won't attend the table reads and they won't be on set during other parts. Then you also have like very careful framing and editing Mm. the children didn't know the context
2: i do wonder like if you grew up and realized that you were in this sort of film like would you be upset by it
1: linda blair didn't know that in the exorcist her character masturbates with a cross until she saw the finished film And a body double filmed that scene an adult body Mm. double so you know you might not necessarily agree to that if you knew about it but then also a lot of hollywood parents who do agree to it they are not necessarily looking out for the (laughs) for the child are they but Also, a lot of these kids, they are professionals, so it's not their first film set experience. Like Jodie Foster, when um, she was in Taxi Driver, mm. she was 12 and that film has got some pretty violent content. So the Los Angeles Welfare Board initially said she can't do it. And then the governor intervened and also a psychiatrist assessed her and they were like, yeah, she's fine with it. And so they apparently they like explained all the special effects to her and, and she was very interested because she's like a film professional by that point anyway. Yeah. And then her older sister acted as her stand-in during like sexual or suggestive scenes. Mm. But she's still playing a child sex worker. I seem to remember as well when Kirsten Dunst was interviewed about Interview with a Vampire, where there's some scene where she has to sort of Exhibit sexual desire and I think they told her something like, think about your favourite cake. (laughs) Although she was 12 when they shot that, I think, and she had to kiss Brad Pitt, who was 30. She said it was many years before she then kissed anyone else because it was like so gross. Yeah. And I'd imagine that would be quite grim for the adult actor as well, right?
0: Do you know what I think what might be slightly more disturbing if you're the person in the film watching it is when you realise as an adult that the reason you were cast as a child is because you were kind of freaky looking. (laughs) That's actually the truth of it, isn't it? In a lot of these horror movies, I mean, you just gave the example of the twins in The Shining. I mean, that's a perfect thing. You know, if I was them watching it back, it wouldn't be like, oh, this is where I got murdered. How horrible. It would be like, oh, they cast us because they thought we were weird. But that's the shock if you realised that you were cast because you were unusual looking.
1: Yeah, but they're not that weird looking in it. It's more just because there are two of them and they're dressed the same. Mm. But like their faces are not odd. You've also been styled to look as weird as possible.
0: But you know, they're projecting an aura of oddness, aren't they? That's the thing. That's what makes it creepy. That's what makes it unsettling. And then, you know, that is your face then that you're walking around
1: with. Well, here's another question of how do they do horrifying things on film. It's from Johanna in North London who says... Ollie, answer me this. In television series such as Silent Witness, how do the victims manage not to breathe during the autopsies so as to not show the chest moving? They can't all be dummies as the faces are too accurate. I have held my breath for the duration of the shots and it's not easy. (laughs) Is this part of drama training?
2: But yeah, we've got stagecraft 101, we've got one on weapons training, one on horse running, one on not breathing for, for five minutes.
1: Actors were often, like, doing side jobs of, like, going and posing as corpses for, like, emergency services training.
0: When you say they can't all be dummies, I mean, obviously, in the close-up, that is true, Mm. but the close-up may only last for three or four seconds, and sometimes when they use the close-up, they apply a bit of slow motion as well to give you a few extra frames. So, you then cut to a wide shot where, indeed, it could be a prosthetic and is likely to be a prosthetic. So, are you really looking at a wide shot where someone isn't breathing for over a minute? I I would speculate that you aren't. The other thing I would say is that, in a way, it is kind of taught at drama school. Because if you're playing the corpse, basically what you're doing is intense relaxation, meditation, deep breathing. And actually, that is part of drama training, isn't Mm. it? I mean, I I doubt at RADA they say, this is so you can play a corpse on Holby City. But I mean, essentially, (laughs) that is one of the ways that you can use that ability to get into a sort of dreamlike relaxed state. And then they do now use VFX as well. So you may not be able to see the body breathing, but that might be because the editor has painted it out.
1: But sometimes they would put the actor under a fake chest. I remember uh, in yeah. BBC Television Centre, in one of the corridors, they had on display a chest from, I think, Casualty or Holby, which had been cranked open. So the actor would go under that like a like a tank top, basically. So their head would be visible, but it's not their real chest.
0: But I read a a blog that was written by an actor who'd played lots of corpses in American TV shows. Uh, And his tip was, avoid caffeine and stimulants if you've got to keep your eyes open.
4: Ah.
0: Because, you know, it's those little things that people will notice in close-up of your eyes just being slightly, well, alive. He said you basically have to get into a state where you allow your eyes to become unfocused. You know, if you stare at something Mm. and it goes blurry. Yeah. You need to be like that because your eyes will subliminally notice a peripheral flicker and that will register in a close-up.
1: I don't know if you've watched the drama I Hate Susie starring Billy Piper, Ollie.
0: I have. I'm on episode four, so no spoilers, please.
1: Uh, this is just a minor thing where they show the filming of a zombie drama. But I assume it's how they also do it in not fiction is the actor kind of goes into a hole in the ground with their head out and then there's like a false version of their body put on the ground so that then yes. the zombies can rip out their fake guts fun to see.
0: Yeah, I don't think it would be fair to rip out their real guts.
1: Retakes would be rather difficult if you've already (laughs) given off your guts for the first shot.
0: A rather trained
2: actor should be able to have their guts ripped out and regenerate spontaneously. (laughs) Don't they teach you anything at drama school?
0: Hello. I'm Pennywise the Clown from Stephen King's
3: It. We're not abusing children or turning into a giant spider. I like to sit in my sewer listening to Answer Me This.
1: Support for Answer Me This is brought to you by Manscaped. Below the waist grooming for the possessors of scrotums. Right. It's a salon it for your
0: scrotum. If you're listening to this and you have balls and you do shave your balls, if you're in that category... This is a great product.
1: I gather it has uh, LED lights so that you can, uh, it's sort of like a little spotlight on uh, mowing your personal lawn.
0: Manscaped have been in the US for quite a few years. Uh, They are now bringing this product international. It's called the Lawn Mower 3.0 in its full glory. It's essentially like a beard trimmer for your pubes. But I mean, if you, like me, have ever tried to trim your pubes with a beard trimmer, uh, you'll know why it is important to have a differentiated category there.
1: Do I want to ask you, or do I just want to not get the details about you and your balls?
0: <laughs> Otherwise, you get little nips and rips all about your bits, and kind of a stinging sensation when you're in the shower, if you've cut yourself Ooh. by mistake. Um, oh. And I have tried the lawnmower Mower 3.0, and I promise it is the best pubic grooming I have ever experienced. It is quiet, it is a super premium blade. It's waterproof wow. so you can use it in the shower. It has that little LED light. It has a USB charging dock. Wow. Genuinely, I mean, it's a very specific purpose, but if you want that purpose, it really is an oh. awesome product.
1: And also Manscaped is in partnership with the Testicular Cancer Society. So good causing, as well as tidy ballsing. <laughs> Get 20% off and free shipping with the code ANSWER at manscaped.com.
0: Yeah, now that site defaults to the US store. So if you're in the UK or Australia or Canada, you can use our code. It works in all of those countries, but you need to select the country that you're in from the little drop-down menu at the top. So that is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use our code...
1: Answer! Your answer.
0: balls will thank you.
1: You're talking balls.
0: <laughs> Hi, Helen and Ollie. Look, this isn't a plug, but... um. I've got a business, I make undies actually, and I've called it, because my last name is Adams, I've called it Fanny Adams Underwear. And I know the story of Fanny Adams, but how come she stayed in, or the the story of her has stayed in our consciousness for so long? Because
1: everyone's heard of her name, most people know her name. What made that story stay? That is a question from Tori, and Tori knows the story of Fanny Adams. I did not until Tory called.
0: I honestly thought Fanny Adams was just like an old man way of saying fuck all. Yeah, yeah
1: well, it, it became that, but it was sort of a backronym. This
0: is going to be like Berkshire Hunt all over again.
1: No, well, it, so, so sweet Fanny Adams was a real phrase, but it just meant something else. And I suppose we should do a content warning for child murder. Right. Because Fanny Adams was a high profile murdered eight year old. In
0: 1867. Wow.
1: In Alton in Hampshire, in England.
0: Was she known as Sweet Fanny Adams before she was murdered?
1: Well, no, but I think in the reporting of the case after the... It was like a very big case in the British press.
0: Yes, they saw the Madeleine McCann of its day, basically.
1: Right, exactly. They are all playing up her youth and innocence. So Fanny Adams was out playing with her sister and a friend. And then this uh, 29-year-old man called Frederick Baker asked her to go for a walk with him in return for a half penny. And he gave the sister and the friend some money for sweets to get rid of them. And then he killed her and dismembered the body. They never even found all of the parts.
0: Ooh, what did they find?
1: Well, they found her head and then they found some other bits.
0: Okay. <laughs> That's a pretty good identifying feature, I suppose.
1: And um, he was hanged for it. Everyone in the country at the time knew about this case. And so then very shortly after, her name became a joke. Thanks to the British Royal Navy. Because they were given tinned meat rations. Right. They were like, Oh, this meat tastes like Fanny Adams's remains. Oh. <laughs> Isn't that oh, terrible? That's really Oh. And that was like two years later, so (laughs) I would say too soon. I would say in the natural lifespan of Fanny Adams is too soon to be mocking her meat.
0: But I guess bad taste jokes, they now circulate on WhatsApp, I guess, don't they? So even though you wouldn't hear it on Live at the Apollo, I suppose that's still happening somewhere. And I guess the Navy is a place where you would kind of expect to hear that. It's still pretty rank, though.
1: And then the tins that had contained the meat became known as Fannies because they would use (laughs) the tins for cooking equipment. Okay. By 1919... Sweet Fanny Adams became a euphemism for fuck all, and I I think partly because FA, that was uh, the acronym to get away with the swearing more, but the meat being unsatisfactory sort of just um, mutated into things that were worthless and things that were nothing.
0: Yeah, you're an army ration worth of meat.
1: But isn't that grim? Like, I had no idea. I didn't think Fanny Adams was a real person, but she was.
0: But also, given that the name is notorious and has persisted, even if... Well, actually, especially because people of our generation and below don't know what it means. I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been, or maybe there has been a B movie, but I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been a TV dramatisation of her murder. Like, why don't people know that that's what it is? Like, it would sell, wouldn't it? It's all about the title these days.
1: I suppose because you want the child to survive, don't you? Otherwise, it's just really hopeless.
0: Uh, You say you want the child to survive. Of course, I want the real child not to have died. But I mean, if I'm watching a grim drama, no, I want the child to die. And I want to see what happens to the murderer. And I want to watch The Hanging. I mean, that's why you watch those sort of, you know, Penny Dreadful type ITV dramas, isn't it? I mean, I I still could imagine there being an audience for that. James Nesbitt in Fanny Adams. You'd watch it.
1: Well, OK, so the murderer was 29. Who would you get to play him? James Nesbitt's too old.
0: James Nesbitt's the uh, superintendent, isn't he? uh 29
1: freddy highmore
0: yes good shout absolutely or Freddie fox i mean it doesn't have to be a man called freddy but now you've said Freddie, i'm thinking he could do that
1: freddy's playing (laughs) freddy here's another question of halloween entertainment from caitlin in atlanta georgia who says ollie answer me this why aren't there more halloween songs the monster mash is a classic and we need more christmas music is huge i think halloween needs some musical love
0: Two reasons, I think. One, I think that traditionally Halloween was very focused on a single day. Mm. Um, So you've got one day for everyone to play your song. But, you know, there are the 12 days of Christmas... In the, in the religious Christmas and in the secular Christmas of course there's the 25 days of the advent calendar and at least two months of consumerism so you've got a lot of time for people to play your Christmas records but
1: Halloween has grown in length hasn't it
0: I, I think that's right I think now you know it does sort of in this country it kind of merges with Harvest Festival and Bonfire Night and the general period so I think you do have a case Caitlin and actually in the movie space they've cotton on to that
1: film is on it with Halloween yes music isn't the Monster Mash was released in August <laughs> it wasn't even released near Halloween
0: well let me say the second reason why I think that there isn't much Halloween music, it's because with Christmas, you can't really misjudge the mood and go to Christmas. You know? <laughs> there's there's not really a divide between kids and adults and in both categories, the more goodwill to all men, the better. Whereas with Halloween, you know, like thrash metal is overdoing it, Sacrifice is going to put some audiences off. Some people are offended by the occult. I mean, with The Monster Mash, yeah. it wasn't played on the BBC until 1973, wow. 11 years after it was released in the States. So I think for that reason, it's it's a hard thing to get right. But despite all that, I still think you could argue for Thriller essentially being a Halloween song, couldn't you? I mean, it, it's on every year.
2: Yeah. Why isn't Nick Cave's murder ballads more popular at Halloween? Yeah. I mean, that's full of, uh, you know, gory imagery.
0: Possibly for the reasons I just said, yeah. <laughs> I'd say Time Warp is in the canon, really. Like, you, you all hear that on Radio 1 on Halloween. And maybe mm. Sympathy for the Devil as well. And Ghostbusters yeah. as well. There are some Halloween songs when you think about it. Do you think it yeah. is
1: also because... Christmas evolved out of a number of religious festivals and singing is typical of religious festivities, whereas Halloween, of course, it's attached to All Hallows' Eve, but mm. the celebration of Halloween is so disjointed from that. It's not like there are Halloween carols in the way there are Christmas carols that then also like lent themselves to there being other kinds of Christmas song.
0: I think that's it. And the, the evidence suggests that even when you've got a Halloween hit on your hands, people don't want to hear an album of it. So people don't know this, but um, there is a whole surf guitar album by bobby pickett uh called the original monster mash on which monster mash is just one of the tracks and and he had responded to the fact that he had this huge novelty hit on his hands by doing like a 10 or 12 track album whatever it was and it's pretty poor (laughs) it's kind of fun to listen to but i i tried last night it's on spotify like there's one called blood bank blues which is about a vampire (laughs) Um, there's one called scully gully which is about like lots of different movie monsters uh, and there's a ballad called Me and My Mummy, M-U-M-M-Y.
1: Oh, wow. Classic.
0: I got three songs in. I was like, okay, I get this now. Like, I just, <laughs> just play Monster Mash. It's fine.
1: So maybe there's just not enough money in it as well. I guess um, people created the market for Christmas pop songs.
0: Uh, would you like a fun fact about Monster Mash? Yes, please. The backing singers are singing, Awoo, Tennis Shoe, Awoo.
1: Really? Is, is that just so it sounds like words even though it's not meant to be about tennis shoes
0: no one knows why like (laughs) no one can record why they're doing that but they definitely once you know and you listen to monster mash and listen out for it it's not in the first chorus but from about two minutes in you can clearly hear tennis shoe and it stands alone despite the fact that nowadays i'd say anyone who isn't a baby boomer so like anyone under the age of 65 basically wouldn't know that bobby pickett is doing a boris karloff impression in that like that doesn't really mean (laughs) anything to us like you kind of know the spooky voice like you get generically what he's doing like a b-movie voice But isn't it weird to think, like, that whole song comes out of an actor basically saying, I do a Boris Karloff impression, it's quite funny. (laughs) You could imagine in 50 years' time, you know, 100 years after the song was released, no one would have any idea who Boris Karloff was, but it's still like the spooky voice from the Monster Mash. Weird.
2: Also, even now, it's like, what is a mash? Like, mash is like mashed potato. Yeah,
1: it's the dance. Yeah, okay,
2: but, like, mashed potato is not a dance that people in the 21st century recognise. That's from, like... The 60s. Yeah, but
1: Twist and Shout is still a popular song, Martin, even Mm. though people don't know the twist. Mm. When I picture a Halloween artist, though, I just think of Meatloaf because of, like, the videos, I
4: guess.
0: Exactly i'd say that's aesthetic and it's it's american gothic isn't it is what it is but it's not if you actually listen to the lyrics they're generally about kind of motorcycle accidents in 1950s suburban america they're not really about
2: halloween (laughs) you sound like an actuary when you put it like that (laughs) had a motorcycle accident in the 1950s town
0: open bracket and it wasn't your fault close (laughs) bracket.
1: yeah I don't know if you've ever helped your mum build a website It is the kind of torment from which there is no respite If she asks, what's a widget again? I will kill her with a rusty spike Or a brick, or a spade, or a chainsaw but
0: Squarespace is so easy, even your mum can use it She can drag and drop and cut and paste, that's all there is to it So Helen, put that spike down, I beg you For Christ's sake, don't do it! Sorry mum
1: Thanks for Squarespace for supporting Answer Me This.
0: Elvira uses Squarespace and I'm not even joking.
1: What does she use it for?
0: She uses it for the like highlights of her career. There's a contact button. There's a gallery.
1: Oh, classic Squarespace
0: use. You know, everything you'd want from the <laughs> Elvira website. You can look through um, all the various different autographed merchandise that you can buy from her, uh, which she sells through the uh, Squarespace e-commerce platform. I mean, basically what I'm saying is, if it's good enough for the Mistress of the Dark, it's good enough for you. <laughs>
1: I didn't know you were into Elvira.
0: I mean, by into, I'd felt a, a below the waist twitch as a child and a, as a Brit. You only saw Elvira on like ITV clip shows hosted by Bob Mills that seemed like a joke I didn't understand. But I, 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 I was in, I was intrigued.
1: Oh, she's got um, Elvira face masks in her oh. merch store. There
0: you are. She's on it, isn't she?
1: Make America goth again. her. <laughs> <If you're... laughs>
0: If you're not as much of a Squarespace pro as Alvara and you're new to Squarespace, they have loads of online support to help you build your website as well. They do free webinars to teach you lots of design tricks. They've got a great blog called Making It, which is, well, I mean, as far as I can see, it's basically aimed at young professionals in America, really. But it is very readable, tells you how to get yourself a job using a website, how to lay out your CV, how to do a video interview, all of that stuff
1: you can make a really beautiful looking website or you can just do as Alvaro does and put a boobtacular picture of yourself right at the top <laughs> and uh, job done. You can go to squarespace.com slash answer play around with the free two week trial.
0: And then when you're ready to launch, get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a spooky website or domain if you use our offer code
4: ANSWER.
3: Hi, Helen and Ollie. This is Allison in Maryland. During quarantine, my friends and I have been reading plays on Zoom together, and for Halloween, we want to do something spooky.
1: So what is the scariest play you've ever seen, and why does it seem like there are fewer scary theatrical plays than there are films?
0: It's a good point. I often mm. wonder, you know, horror movies, they're so popular, why theatre isn't used, because the, the the medium of being in the same building as what's happening on stage just automatically heightens the atmosphere, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I wonder whether it's just the demographics, because horror is often aimed at young people who may not be going to theatre.
0: Exactly, the is 40 quid a ticket.
1: And also a lot of horror films became classics because they were on, like, home video.
0: Yeah, but still, again, you'd, you'd think some entrepreneur somewhere would put on a production of Carrie.
1: Or a musical of The Ring.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: When Alison said, what's the scariest play you've ever seen, though, there was just one answer immediately for me, which was Woman in Black.
0: Me too. And, and to be honest, actually, it's the only ghost play that I've ever seen. So I, I can't really compare, but apparently... Uh, ghost stories by jeremy dyson and andy nyman was really scary but I, I never saw that because i actually didn't want to be scared like i don't want to be scared actually the marketing turned me off i did go and see the woman in black on a school trip like most people do when they're about 15 mm. and i just fucking loved it and i went about four times since then and it is a properly scary this is Stephen malatrat's adaptation of susan hill's woman in black properly scary show isn't
1: it? yeah actually every version of the woman in black a book i've seen two film adaptations and the play have all been scary, but in quite different ways because the films are a lot more blatant about it. Whereas the play, it just really puts the shits up you in surprising <laughs> ways.
0: They've got a new pull quote from Helen Zaltzman after all these years. <laughs> Thirty-one years in the West End, it really puts the shits up you. Helen Zaltzman, <laughs> answer me this.
1: Yes, <laughs> what they've been waiting for. But in the play, there are two actors. Yes, playing the part. So, would you advise Alison to keep it that way with the zoom, or just include more people? If this is more of a getting people together exercise.
0: It's a really hard play to read out, you know, because I did it for my GCSE drama. Like I loved it so much that when it came to doing an extract of a play for our practical exam, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so me and my mate Jay did it and it was all right, obviously, but we were 15. And so not really <laughs> carrying the weight of being a solicitor's clerk, <laughs> whatever it was supposed to be. But it's hard because so the reason there are only two actors in it is because it was done cheaply. Oh, Because it was designed as like a Christmas story to fill the Stephen Joseph Theatre in Scarborough when it was effectively closed for a few weeks from their usual repertoire. Wow. And so it was commissioned to be as low budget as possible.
1: Really? That's so interesting.
0: That's why there's only two actors in it. and, And it's a play within a play. So you see them being actors first and then you see them playing all the parts. But actually, that's what makes it brilliantly theatrical and intimate. And that's what's kept it running for 31 years because it's so cheap to stage. So you can do it in a small theatre and only have half the seats occupied and you're still going to be making a profit. But that is quite hard to do on Zoom because you need two very accomplished actors. That's the problem. You need two actors who can play like 20 parts between them.
1: Yeah, although I suppose you could adapt it for the Zoom format because the main character is isolated a lot of the time.
0: Although is that boring for everyone else watching?
1: don't know. It depends how good they are at monologuing.
0: I mean, you're only going to really get into it, I'd imagine, if you're participating. So it's probably better to choose a ghost story that's a light ghost story, but has parts for lots of people, like something by Edgar Allan Poe or something.
1: So read a novel or short stories rather than a play text.
0: Yes. Although I would say it's amazing how much atmospherics have to do with it. Like, it's a torch, it's a shadow, it's a sound effect, it's minor illusion. It's stuff you actually could do with a few candles and stuff, which would really heighten the mood.
1: yeah. Look, well, because I was thinking, well, maybe Alison could do some film scripts instead of plays. But then I was like, well, why Why is it that plays aren't scary? Because I do think it's easier, actually, because of all these powers of suggestion, like you mentioned. Yeah. Because I was thinking, Christmas Carol, there are scary productions of that.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, I've. It's easier to think of scary moments in plays that I've seen, rather than plays that themselves are scary the whole way through.
1: Mm. Like Macbeth.
0: Right. I mean, the only other thing that comes close in terms of scaring the shit out of me... Uh, is the Jim Rose Circus. Do you know what that is? I don't.
1: Please don't. Yeah,
0: of
2: course. Yeah, I know what Jim Rose is. Enlighten me. They're sort of like pre-Jackass Jackass, jackass, aren't they, really? They do weird shit like hammer nails into their noses and like hang fridges off their
0: ball sacks. That's right. What?
2: Yeah, it's like a weird like Sado cabaret, I guess.
0: So I'm a delicate child. It's the 90s. I'm 15. I go to Edinburgh Fringe Festival with my parents. It's past midnight. I'm in a converted church and I'm watching as what's billed as a sort of circus freak show thing. And it's just they went full on. You know, they had artists coming out of coffins. They had motorbikes. There was organ music. People inserted nails in their genitals. They they broke windows over their heads. So, I mean, it was intensely theatrical and I kind of admired it, but I did not feel safe there. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the only other time I've been scared watching something. I I was dreading any kind of audience participation because I was 10 years younger than everyone else in the room.
1: And also you didn't want to get tetanus.
0: But actually, obviously, that's a job well done, that they created that atmosphere. It's incredible, really. Like, it felt like a proper Victorian carnival freak show, but I was was not happy.
1: I saw Bat Boy the Musical. I suppose that is sort of supposed to be scary that's
2: funny scary isn't it like sweeney todd though i've seen Shockheaded peter three times and there is a mm. scene a short scene in that that always gives me a massive jump scare even though when i
0: know it's coming yeah that's not one you do on a zoom call read though is it i mean that's uh, no, it's hard. very that's elaborate a, puppetry very puppetry based <laughs> uh piece
1: hey Alison might have the puppetry she might have <laughs> you, the, the band
0: she didn't mention that did she in no, <laughs> the call it was a
1: very it was a 15 second call yeah lots we don't know Here's a question from Paul, who says, Back in 1992, when I was a freaky 10-year-old horror obsessive, Ghostwatch, a faux live broadcast for Haunted House starring Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green and Craig Charles, was shown at Halloween on BBC One, and it was excellent.
0: How bizarre, by the way, that we should feature two Michael Parkinson side projects on the show in consecutive episodes. (laughs) Last month, Band on the Run. This month, uh, Ghostwatch. Can we do give us a clue next month?
1: (laughs) However, says Paul... After Watch aired, the newspapers reported that several people believed it was real mm. and it even led to the suicide of a man with learning disabilities.
0: It did, yeah.
1: Oh, really? God.
0: Well, in tabloid parlance, it did. Okay. I mean, he he left a note that suggested that he might now become a ghost and he'd recently been watching it and he had the mental age of a oh. 13-year-old. So yeah, that's oh. how the tabloids reported wow. it at the time. Yeah.
1: After this, the terrestrial TV channel seemed to stop showing horror on Halloween for many years afterwards. So Ollie answer me this, were the BBC and other channels forced to stop showing horror at Halloween? Was it an internal decision or has my horror-addled mind just imagined the whole thing?
0: Yeah, it's interesting this because um the BBC's attitude to Ghost Watch now um is one of I wouldn't call it pride, but they certainly celebrate the uh episode and you can buy it on DVD and it's been acknowledged as a cult classic. But at the time, because of that uh, young man's death, very sadly, you know, there was a huge furore about it. And so, I, I, I mean, I can't find a record of the BBC's Halloween schedule for 1993, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did indeed steer away from the subject of Halloween for a few years because that programme, it got 30,000 phone calls, <gasps> um, the first ever reports of kids getting PTSD from a TV programme.
4: Um,
0: and then that young man take his own life. So, I mean, it was it was a tabloid like clusterfuck when it happened. Um, but then I think there was a period afterwards of reflection where people realised that the people that hadn't been disturbed by it, they loved it.
1: Do you think they remember it like that because it was never repeated on British television? So it's just in people's memories?
0: Partly. I mean, you can't really now, if you were to watch a repeat of it, and I haven't seen it since 1992, but if you were to watch a repeat of it, you, you couldn't really uh, replicate the resonance of having these live... TV presenters who both as a kid you knew, because Sarah Green and Mike Smith were big stars from Saturday Morning Kids TV, but also people like Michael Parkinson who gave it real weight. Like he'd never done anything. The most stupid thing he'd done was be attacked by EMU. <laughs> like, you know, he'd never done a, a spoof comedy show before. And so his presence was the thing that made you think it must be real, even though right. they build it as a drama. Like They, they introduced it as a drama. Oh. At the end, they credited it as a drama written by, you know, but uh, I don't know, uh, people are more media savvy now than they were then.
1: But this is like six or so years before Blair Witch and then people were like, I thought it was real. Yeah. So actually Ghost Watch was way ahead of the game. But that has real
2: echoes of that um, famous awesome Wells War of the Worlds, doesn't it? When yes. people cast on the radio and lots of people, well, there's some debate now as to whether it's exaggerated, but the story, the, the the myth is that loads of people freaked out and thought aliens were really landing in Massachusetts or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I suppose it's any horror format where you're using not just found footage, which I guess is the Blair Witch genre. But it's live broadcast. But it's live, exactly. You're using the language of live broadcast with presenters that you trust on BBC One. Uh, you have to remember, 1992, 9.35pm, 11 million people would be watching BBC One. It's not like now. Um, and there was no... You know, nowadays, if they did a stunt like that, then immediately everyone would hop on Twitter or Facebook and, of course, there'd be conversation about how they made it and who's in it and who wrote it. Yeah, yeah. But then, what they'd done actually is they constructed. So they had the phone, the the, the going live phone line. Oh eight one eight one one eight one eight one was the number <laughs> that you called uh, whilst you were watching. So they had Mike Smith in front of a bank of actors on telephones saying, "We're waiting for your call. Have you seen a ghost?" And the idea was that the, for everyone who called that number, they'd get a voice greeting saying, "The program you're watching is fictional. Don't have nightmares." However, if you'd like to mm. share your spooky story, leave it after the beep. But they got so many phone calls, like I say, 30,000, that the line crashed. Uh. And so most people got an engaged tone. They didn't hear the message saying it was fictional. And like I say, it's not like now where there'd be a website. There was nothing. So like, people who thought it was real thought it was real and had nothing to contradict it.
1: Did Parkinson in particular get into trouble for it since he was the trustworthy element?
0: No, I haven't actually seen much record of that. Sarah Green was the one who got some flack because she was a contemporary kids TV presenter. And so her presence on the show, even though it was 9.35 at night, sort of said to children, this is for you. So she had to go on Blue Peter or something on the Monday and tell everyone it was fictional. Um, (laughs) But uh, no, the rest of them, I think, kind of, well, not only got away with it, but actually were going to be BAFTA nominated, allegedly, and the BBC suppressed <laughs> that because it had been such a furore that they didn't want to be recognised for it at awards season.
2: I have like a dim recollection of watching some of that broadcast and it being obviously bullshit. Yeah. Like, and I, and I must... But when you say it was 92, so I would have been 14. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not the media savvy uh, behemoth that I am now. <laughs> and even
0: I figured out that it was it was obviously a fake. At the end, it gets really silly, and Michael Parkinson gets possessed by a ghost, And it's it's very clearly a gag. But, you know, you're an hour in by that point. Like, what they did quite well and quite cleverly, I think, is that the scares weren't big jump scares. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. were crediting the audience's intelligence to spot things in the background,
4: which, of course, you
0: know, pre-high definition was hard to do. And, and the, the Mike Smith in the call centre thing was like, we've been having lots of calls from lots of viewers all over the country who all see, they all say they see something in the background. In this shot, let's have a look at it. And then they played back the same shot and it didn't have the person standing in the background and mm, stuff like that. That's nice. So it was, it was real like mind tricks on the audience who were prepared to go along with it. And what was clever about it was even though shows like Most Haunted hadn't been invented yet, Mm. the visual language of that broadcast, even though it was fictional, kind of pre-echoed all of that stuff existing. So they had infrared cameras and they had interviews with passers-by. It felt like if there was a real ghost show, which there then turned out to be 10 years later, this is what it would look like.
1: What is it that people were so angry about?
0: It scared them shitless, and there was one woman who uh, who wrote in to the BBC and asked for compensation in the form of a pair of trousers because her husband had literally <laughs> shat himself. <laughs> and like I say, PTSD. I mean, actually recorded psychological disorders as a result of watching that program.
1: Is there a statute of limitations to complaining to the BBC? Like, could you call them up? <laughs> it now is too and late like... to complain about to <laughs> My cardiologist says that uh, yeah. <laughs> you've destroyed me.
4: I'm an answer me this fan I listen with my nan She is not so keen She finds it too obscene I follow them on Twitter Though Ashton Kutcher's fitter I want to take things further Just one step short of murder I want to look like Ollie Man I want to smell like Ollie Man I want to feel like Ollie Man I want to chase like Ollie Man I want to be
0: Here's a question from Alice in Auckland who says Helen asked me this What happens if you cut a vampire's arm off? I can't remember seeing any one-armed vampires Uh, (laughs) Vampires are very ableist genre
1: I went to my friendly vampire expert Jenny Owen Young's of Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast And she could identify a one-armed vampire in the Buffy film. Did anyone watch the Buffy film? I I remember people not liking it.
0: I mean, it existed. I assume someone bought a ticket.
1: I know it existed because in the video shop in Southborough on the outskirts of Tunbridge Wells, there was a large cardboard cutout of Kirsty Swanson from the film.
0: Southborough cutouts don't lie.
1: There's no point lying in the Southborough video shop. (laughs) Jenny says, Paul Rubens famous for playing Pee Wee Herman, either loses an arm in the movie or starts the movie without one arm and it doesn't grow back.
0: I mean, if he lost it, you know, because of an accident or he was born with that defect as a human, because of course vampires are just normal people, aren't they, who then become vampires, then that makes sense. If someone injured a vampire... By trying to chop off their arm that's the question that alice is asking what happens if you cut a vampire's arm off it's a bit like asking what happens if you cut a lion's mane i mean just don't do you if you're that close stab him through the heart <laughs> you wouldn't take the risk would you
1: but here's the thing with vampires though right they're supposedly hard to kill although i dispute that in that you can do it with daylight mm-hmm. or stake through the heart but You could really fuck up a vampire and then they have to live with it long term. That's right, yeah. So maybe that's why Alice is asking. You know, you can reduce a vampire just to the essentials.
0: So you'd die, but you'd have the satisfaction of knowing that for all eternity they're going to be a vampire that's less able. But if you cut a vampire's arms and legs
2: off...
1: Yeah, how are they going to feed? I mean, I
2: suppose I could still turn into a bat and attack you that way, but they're less able to pose a threat. Yeah, presumably
1: vampires can also starve to death, and I, I don't know that I've seen the materials and i haven't watched loads of vampire stuff but materials where vampires do starve so i guess that would be another way that they could die
0: i mean in some senses you could argue that vampirism is an impairment anyway uh you know they need to stay in darkness they've got very specific dietary requirements losing an arm would just be another disability to add to the list actually researching for this i searched for how do vampires and uh, the auto prompt on google was get hard
1: <laughs> oh right
0: because of the blood flow. Well, yeah, but we all know that they drink blood and they like blood, so that's how they get hard. Like, what's the issue? Like, why are people Googling that? I mean, I know there's a sex vampire thing going on, but why would that be an obstacle? Is
2: there some like version of the vampire myth where vampires don't have blood and that's why they have to drink blood?
0: But then they've got it and then they're able to get an erection, surely. Yeah,
1: but things you eat don't mm. necessarily go into your circulation in I their guess. pure form. Like, you're not getting mm. extra blood in your system by eating black pudding.
0: Well, you kind of are, but I know you wouldn't, it wouldn't give you a stiffy. Well, it might, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's coincidental.
1: Every single vampire thing that I have seen has done slightly different things with the vampire lore. Mm. So I'd imagine some of them if it was convenient to their plot to cut a vampire's arm off and they die from it by bleeding out or whatever a vampire does instead of bleeding out, then I guess they would do that. Or, I mean, do vampires get, like, infected wounds? There's a lot of vampire logistics questions. How does a scratch on a vampire heal?
0: Right. Do you know, they reckon that the the vampire myth might have been inspired as a sort of supernatural solution to explain the circumstances of porphyria. Um, Mm. Which is is a disorder where you get blisters when your skin's exposed to sunlight and it can cause gums to uh, recede from the teeth in extreme cases, which makes them look more prominent. And it can make your body go purple or at least your waist go purple like undigested blood. And there were a lot of cases in Romania in the 1700s, apparently. And that's where the idea of vampires came from as a way of explaining what was happening.
2: I did one of my first science communication talks on this because I was uh, working in the field of photosensitivity. Uh And apparently apparently one of the cures, one of the folk cures was giving people blood they thought that would help to cure it
1: well that was a a medical thing for 1600 years because of the four humors if you'd been diagnosed as your humors were imbalanced because you didn't have enough blood they would try and stimulate blood production by making you eat spice things like that maybe some of them would have like made you drink blood
0: i also read this really horrible thing that was saying that basically when there was a, a like a plague in the old days Um, kind of like what we're having now if people didn't scientifically understand what was happening then of course the first thing they'd recourse to is is a supernatural solution and they'd say you know maybe it's the undead somewhere or someone's put a curse on us and in some cases that led to people digging up corpses that they were suspicious about
4: to look at them and see what was
0: going on and in some cases those corpses had fresh blood on their teeth and that's where the idea came from (gasps) that people who are undead go around biting stuff and the reason Mm. that they had blood on their teeth (laughs) according to this article is that Back then, people were buried alive in a catatonic state with an undetectable pulse, and oh. in extreme cases, if you woke up underground and you were in a coffin, you'd bite yourself in panic. Oh God! And that's what the blood would be, and then they'd find them later and be like vampire, and oh, you know Jesus. that would be their whole family's reputation ruined.
2: It's a bit victim blaming, isn't it?
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, I've enjoyed this foray into Halloween stuff, Ollie.
0: So have I. I knew I would. I knew I would. It's been great. Aww. If you've enjoyed this themed episode of the show, you should check out our themed albums that are available at com.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, Christmas follows on from the Halloween spirit. And so maybe you could give Answer Me This Christmas a go.
0: Or our new for 2020 album, Home Entertainment, which like this is a special edition, just about one theme. In that case, stuff you do at home. So cooking, box set binging, et cetera. And it is free right now if you want it to be. It's pay what you like at AnswerMeThisStore.com. Every penny supports the show.
1: We'll be back next month with a fresh new episode of Answer Me This and we need your questions so please send us emails or voice memos. Our contact details are on our website AnswerMeThisPodcast.com Answer
0: this and we have other work for you to check out online. Helen?
1: Yes, I make the podcast Veronica Mars Investigations where we're just about to reach the finale of season two. <gasps> yeah, it's exciting but in a slightly annoying way. And The Illusionist, I have just released no title which was the 2019 illusionist touring show which is basically an hour of stand-up about gender in language and there's a lot of information in it and you wouldn't have thought it'd be a great topic for entertainment but it is
0: well i didn't make it along to a live event because the one time you did it in britain i wasn't in britain so i will yeah i I did that deliberately yeah
1: (laughs) what's happening in the manscaped universe of pods (laughs) this month
0: uh, well, I do five podcasts. You can discover them all at Ollyman.com. And in my magazine show, The Modern Man, M-A-N-N, uh, we test out trends, answer your sex questions, and meet incredible people. And in this month's edition, uh, I meet and Answer Me This listener, actually, called Lexi. Hi, Lexi. Go. Cool who is a trans woman, and we talk about her journey from male to female, hormones, pronouns, surgeons, all of that. And actually, most interestingly, I think, uh, the realities of dating as a trans woman and deciding who is genuinely interested in her and who is a fetishist. Listen to that at modernmanman.co.uk.
1: Maddin. I do a couple of
2: podcasts that uh, and some listeners might enjoy. One of them is called Maddie Sound Explorers, hosted by children's presenter Maddie Moat. Uh, where we take a sound and we explore science or nature. Um, So you could listen to that. Just search uh, on your podcatcher for Muddy Sound Explorers.
1: That's a good one if you've got kids.
2: It's a great one if you've got kids. If you haven't got kids, still fun. Or if you are a kid. Uh, If you like music, I do a podcast called Song by Song, in which we talk about the music of Tom Waits. Great
0: one if you've got kids.
1: That one, yeah, good
0: to start (laughs) on young.
2: That's songbysongpodcast.com.
1: And if you want more of our Answer Me This stuff, then you can buy episodes 1 to 200 at answermethistore.com and we will also put one of those archive episodes out into your pod feed in the middle of the month and uh, then we'll be back here with you next month
0: talk about non-scary things
1: you can send us pictures of your uh, home Halloween stuff uh, on our Twitter I would enjoy seeing that
0: I want to see that Martin costume so bad
1: oh my god yes send us all of your Martin costume (laughs) pictures we'll have a competition for the sexiest Martin the Salman costume Uh... if only Martin could win that contest
2: It'd be a bit galling if I didn't win that contest.
1: Sorry. It's like when Adele didn't win the Adele Sounded Like contest, Martin. <laughs> Bye! Bye.